Good morning, Grace. Grab your Bible. If you turn to Proverbs chapter 3, we're going to finish the rest of this chapter today. Jordan, thank you for praying for me. I want to pray for myself and for us as we're going to hear God this morning. Uh, Lord, I believe this. We are going to hear from you this morning because we're going to read your word and your word is living and active, Lord. We believe that your word is not merely things that you said in the past that have been recorded for us to to reflect back on and remember, but that your Holy Spirit speaks to us this morning, today, in the present time through these words that you speak to us again and again and again. So I thank you for your word, Lord. I feel my inadequacy this morning. Lord, and we, we rest on the, the truth and the goodness of your word. I pray you'd call us uh, into the path of life this morning through your word. Pray that you would, you would convince us we are stubborn and slow to learn that your ways truly are the ways of life, that your ways are good and best. You are worthy of our trust and our praise and our obedience, Lord. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would convince us of these things this morning and call us into life in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to read, just start right off reading our passage, Proverbs 3, 13 through the end of the chapter. Blessed, blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding for the gain from her is better than the gain from silver. Her profit is better than gold. She's more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deeps broke open, the clouds dropped down the dew. We're feeling a little bit of that right now. My son, don't lose sight of these. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. They will be life for your soul and adornment for your neck. Then you will walk on your way securely and your foot will not stumble. If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes for the Lord will be your confidence. He will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Don't say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. (laughs) Don't plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Don't contend with a man for no reason when he's done no harm to you. Don't envy a man of violence. Don't choose any of his ways for the devious person is an abomination to the Lord but the upright are in his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners, he is scornful, 
but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. This is the Lord's word. So blessed is the key word here this morning. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom. Happy is the one who finds wisdom. I was reminded this week of this quote from Blaise Pascal, who was a philosopher and a theologian and a mathematician. He did a lot of things by by the age of 39, which is, I didn't realize when he died, much younger than me. Uh, But listen to what he said about happiness. He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The the cause of some going to war, um, the cause of others avoiding it, Uh, is the same desire attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. In other words, to be happy. It's the motive of every action of every man. I believe that, that God created us as human beings with this, this universally shared internal strong desire to be happy to be satisfied, to know peace and and goodness, to to, to be content. And the million dollar question is, what will bring us this happiness? What will fill this ache and this void that we all have? You know, the Bible says, if we get the answer wrong, at the very best, you'll spend your life settling for just small happiness. Like C.S. Lewis wrote, like a child who's ignorant and wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because they just can't imagine what a holiday at the sea is like. At the very worst, you can shipwreck your life if you get the answer to that question wrong. And like Solomon, who wrote these words, you can try to suck happiness from every earthly thing and come to the end of your life and conclude like he did, I've seen everything that's done under the sun and behold, it's all vanity and a striving after the wind. What will make us happiest? God has not left us without an answer to this. He's told us throughout the scriptures that it's him. We will find our greatest happiness in him. Psalm 16 concludes with this verse that makes this powerful statement about the relationship of God to our desire to be happy. And it says this, Psalm 16 says to God, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, God, is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Just think about that statement. Fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore are found at the right hand of God. Not meagerness of joy, Not pleasures for a limited time, but pleasures forevermore, quantity and quality. Happiness is found with God. I want to ask, as we begin, is that how you think of God and your happiness? Because our world sometimes likes to paint the God of the Bible as against our happiness, doesn't it? 
that God is the God who wants to steal our happiness from it, to withhold happiness. He's the, the, the lawmaker and the boundary line drawer, and he wants to steal happiness from us. He wants to restrict us from pleasure. He's an insatiable taker, as Randy put it last week, that small view of God. God says no to all the good stuff. And I wonder this morning, if, you, if your reluctance to surrender your life to God in the first place, if that's you today, is in part because this is your view of God. He's demanding. He's a taker. You know best what will make you happiest. And he seems to draw boundary lines around all the things that you think will bring you greatest joy. I wonder maybe if you struggle with doubt this morning, because in part, this is how you view him. The circumstances of your life right now tempt you to think that he just doesn't want you to be happy. Maybe your unwillingness to surrender certain areas of your life to his authority and to his word are because deep down you think that he's trying to keep some happiness from you. That's not the God who's speaking to us here in Proverbs 3. He's far from being an insatiable taker. He's an extravagant giver. God wants you to be happier than you want for yourself. That's why he made us. He didn't have to create any of us. He brought us into existence and created this world so that we might taste his goodness and knowing him and enjoying him be happy. He wants us to find the path of life. He wants us to find him. And that's what this passage is about. That's what wi getting wisdom is about. It's about finding deepest happiness, the longest lasting happiness. So this passage that I just read sort of breaks into two sections. The longer first section is just an extended appeal of this father to the son to get wisdom because the father wants his son to be happy. So point number one is this, happy wife, happy life. I know that saying normally means, husbands, if you want a happy life, <clears throat> serve and love your wife and your life will be happy. If she's happy, you're happy. I want to take that little saying and kind of flip it up on its head because it came to my mind as I was reading this passage this week because the father's not saying to the son, you've got to keep wisdom happy in order to be happy, but just the opposite. The, the father is still personifying wisdom as this beautiful woman that he desperately wants his son to fall in love with, embrace, and never let go. He wants his son to marry wisdom. And the point is that wisdom is already a happy wife. Wisdom is the wife that if his son will just embrace her and never let her go, will make his life deeply happy. Because verse 17, her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. So look at verse 13 and verse 18. Twice the father makes this statement that the one who finds, who gets, who lays hold of and holds on to wisdom is blessed and is called blessed. And because true wisdom only comes through the fear of the Lord and knowing him, really the father is saying the one who gets God and lays hold of God and holds on to God will truly be blessed. 
So first question, why? Why is wisdom the path to such great happiness? Look at verses 14, 15. He says, because nothing you desire can compare with wisdom. The gain from her, he says, is better than the gain from silver. Her profit is better than gold. She's more precious than jewels. Nothing you desire can compare with her. You know that little happiness of, of maybe it's happened to you recently is it's finally turning colder and you finally pulled your jacket out that you haven't worn since April and you stick your hand in the pocket or maybe a pair of pants you haven't worn since uh, the spring and you find money in there and you pull it out and it's like, there was a $20 bill in my pocket for months. I had no idea. You know that happiness when you finally get your year-end tax refund and it hits your checking account? And it's there. Some of you are like, I don't know that experience. That never happens to me. I always end up paying money. Um, or you get a, a birthday card and you always open your birthday card hoping something's going to fall out, right? Right? None of you opens it up thinking, I just hope there's a really nice sentiment written here, right? You, you open it and, and a check slips out. Even better. And you look and it's, and it's a generous amount. Or some of you know the joy, that, that, that happiness of getting a new car, even if it's a used car. Or closing escrow for the first time on a house. These are all fine. There's nothing wrong with these. But all of these things don't uh, pale in comparison to getting wisdom. The, the father is saying, listen, silver, gold, jewels, money, and all that money can get for you, as happy as that all can make you, pales in significance to wisdom. It can't compete with getting wisdom. Nothing you desire can compare with wisdom. That is a superlative statement. I want to ask you for a minute to, get, to, to put that to the test in your, in your mind here. What's the biggest happy thing you desire in life? Do you have it? Because God is saying, nothing you desire can compare with getting wisdom. Even that thing you're thinking of right now, as good as it is, and it may be a good thing that God wants you to have and even wants you to want, he's still saying it can't compare with getting wisdom. That's quite a claim. So why? Why is wisdom so incomparably value? Well, this is what the Father says. It's because the, the wisdom is a tree of life. Keep reading, 16, 17, 18. Long life is in her right hand. And in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to all who lay hold of her. So here's what the father's doing right now. As he's, he's, he's urging his son and us as we listen in to get wisdom and not reject God's wisdom, he wants us to think back to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. As he, as he references the tree of life and he uses that to illustrate what getting wisdom is like. Think back to Genesis chapter two. You know that the, the tree of life only shows up in the Bible in three books? I didn't realize this till this week. It's in Genesis and it's in the book of Revelation and it's here in the book of Proverbs. And the father uses it to describe how incomparably valuable wisdom is. He says it's a tree of life. Think back to Genesis two. God creates the world, everything in it, the riches of, of the world, the fullness of it. And then he creates man and he breathes life into Adam. And in Genesis 2, it says, he places the man in the garden whom he'd formed 
And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there's these two trees that the Lord puts in the midst of this garden, bursting with life and fullness for Adam. And notice, if you think about Genesis 2, God offers Adam, God offers us in the very beginning, all the same things that wisdom is offering us here in Proverbs 3. Long life, riches, honor, pleasantness, peace. He says to Adam, you can eat of any tree in the garden, every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. But the implication is as long as Adam goes on trusting, lovingly obeying God and his good boundaries, he can live forever. He can just keep eating from the tree of life and it will sustain him forever. God offers us riches. He says to Adam, every tree that's pleasant to the sight is yours for food. Every tree. He offers honor. God creates Adam and Eve in his image. Unlike anything else that God created, crowns us with the honor of reflecting him in this world and the honor of ruling over this world. He says to Adam to, to work and keep the, the ground, to, to subdue it and bring it into uh, to, to submission to you that it might yield its fullness to you. He gives him honor. And he promises him an, an everlasting life of pleasantness and peace. Peace with God, peace with one another, and peace with the world. And if they just would have trusted God's offer here to just keep eating from the tree of life, eating from the tree of life, respecting his boundary, trusting the goodness of it, they could have enjoyed that forever. But as we know, they chose tree number two. And they forfeited all of that. Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree, tree number two, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she gave also some to her husband who was with her and he ate. They looked at tree number two and were tempted to think God is hiding more happiness behind that tree. There is more happiness than what he's offered us right here. He's not a giver, he's a withholder. And they acted on their own wisdom. And instead of blessing, God pronounced the curse that he had warned of. And instead of life, they lose life. God says, now you will return to the ground for out of it you were taken for your dust and to dust you will return. And the loss of riches and honor Instead of a world now that, uh, that was created to yield its fullness to them, now cursed is the ground because of you, God says. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth and by the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. They lose pleasantness, multiplied pain and things like childbirth and, and growing crops. It's gonna come by the sweat of your brow and through toil. And the loss of peace, the loss of peace with God. They become enemies of God and they quickly turn on one another, even at the very beginning. And the world turns against them. They lose peace sort of in every direction. 
But praise God, the gospel, the good news of the Bible is that God knew all of that before he even created and had a plan to graciously redeem our greatest tragedy, our first and ultimate rejection of his goodness and his love and his grace. And his plan was to send his son who would set aside riches and honor and his own life and he'd lay it down as a ransom for us to pay for the guilt of the first Adam who turned his back on all of it. So why are we supposed to remember all this here in Proverbs? Well, I think it's because this, God's invitation for us to get wisdom his invitation to the path of life is the same. It's like this offer to Adam and Eve. It's not exactly the same. There's not a literal tree of life right now. At the end of that scene, when, when God pronounces the curse and drives Adam and Eve out of the garden, he cuts them off from the tree of life and now death enters in. And it's not until the book of Revelation that describes the end when, when Christ returns and brings all things uh, before his throne of judgment and creates a new earth and his people enter into it and now with resurrected bodies live forever, sort of eating from the tree of life again. But for now, even in this fallen world, the invitation to the path of life is like this invitation. Come to me, God says, for life and wealth and honor and pleasantness and peace. Now, as we've been saying in the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs are not hard, fast promises. We live in a fallen world and these, these, these words of wisdom are generally true. So it's generally true that wise living ought to prolong life, generally. Generally speaking, wise stewardship of what God's given us ought to increase wealth. Generally speaking, wise conduct ought to lead to a life um, and reputation that's worthy of honor and not disgrace. But because the world's fallen, we have viruses, we have flash floods, we have um, crises, we're sinful, our sin affects one another. Sometimes um, these things don't always work out this way in this life. There are some happinesses that God wants for us that actually only come through trial. As we saw in the passage last week, we have a loving father who in his desire for our maximum happiness at times will even discipline, bring discipline into our lives and, and things that are painful for the moment, but in the end yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So I don't want us to under, misunderstand what uh, wisdom is promising as a tree of life, as a prosperity gospel. It wouldn't make sense for the father to be saying, wisdom is better than gold, silver, and jewels. Why? Because wisdom will get you gold, silver, and jewels. There are riches, true riches of life that money just can't buy you, but wisdom will. So while these things are generally true and trustworthy now, they will all ultimately prove true for everyone who holds fast to God and his wisdom in the end. Now that we know God's plan, that Christ has come, we know that this fear of the Lord, this beginning of wisdom and knowledge begins with us repenting of our sin and foolishness and our lack of wisdom and coming to God empty handed and saying, Lord, forgive our sin in Jesus' name. Spirit, come into our lives. Help us now to, to want your wisdom and to walk in paths of life. 
And God's promise to us ultimately is for all who embrace wisdom like that, who lay hold of it and never let go, we will enjoy eternal life. We're promised an inher- uh, a, a imperishable inheritance, First Peter says. We will be crowned with the honor of God's love and eternal fatherhood. And we will enjoy the pleasantness and peace of a world without sin or suffering or sorrow forever. So the question then is, what evidence do we have to really trust God, his promise that wisdom is a tree of life and nothing we can desire can compare with it? Well, look where he goes next, verses 19 and 20. He says, just look at the world. It's brimming with evidence of God's incredible knowledge and wisdom. We're meeting outside today, which is wonderful. You can look right around and see evidences and examples of that right now, some of which are mentioned even right here. He says, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. He established the heavens by his understanding, by his knowledge, the deeps broke open and clouds dropped down the dew. As we're considering whose wisdom will we trust, our owns or God's, the father's saying, look at the world. Everything God's made from the micro subatomic level to the macro galactic level is extraordinary in its design and its complexity and the way it all works together. Even in a fallen world, it's amazing. And we're supposed to look up at it all and consider who should we trust, our wisdom or the creator of all this? If any of you get see the ads on social media for masterclass online instructional videos. There are all these, these videos that you can, you can pay for and you can take classes on whatever the subject uh, of your interest from experts. So you can learn comedy from Steve Martin if you're just willing to pay for the class. You can learn acting from Sam Jackson. You can learn business leadership from uh, Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, or you can learn writing lessons from Malcolm Gladwell. There's this, these, all these master classes. And the whole point is you can hear from an expert how, how, how to learn this subject of your interest. And, and here in Proverbs, it's God is offering us the master class in happiness. And it comes by way of laying hold of his wisdom. And we're to conclude that the God who created all of this certainly knows best how the world works and how we work best. And we're to trust him, even when at times it doesn't make sense or it contradicts our gut. And then the father says, don't lose sight of this. Look at verse 21. Don't lose sight of this, these things. Don't lose sight of wisdom and whose wisdom will get, bring us the greatest happiness. He says, keep sound wisdom and discretion. Keep it. The more we know God's word, the more we uh, know how he thinks and what he loves and what he values and what he hates and what he's done, we will be transformed by the renewing of our minds. One pastor that I, I read this week said, people whose minds are saturated with God's word and submissive to his thoughts, that's important, will have a wisdom that in eternity will prove superior to all the secular wisdom in the world. 
This is why we need God's word. We need to return to it regularly. Years ago, I had a conversation with someone and was stunned to hear their view of of, of sort of how the Bible related to their life. And and this person told me that they had read the Bible cover to cover at one point in their life and they don't read it regularly anymore. They've read it, they know what's in there and now it's just a matter of doing it. And I remember thinking, that's not how the Bible works. We don't just read it one time. Okay, got that. Got the content of it. No, we need to come back to it again and again, reading it, meditating on it, memorizing it, God, allowing God to speak to us through it in real time, day by day. This is how we, we, we keep sound wisdom and discretion. We lay hold of it and we hold on to it. But it's more than just that. It's more than just rigorous Bible reading and, and self-discipline to stick to the plan if we miss the point that it's to have communion with God, to know God's thoughts and to have fellowship with him. One of the commentaries I read this week had a great reminder. Wisdom isn't just content to be accumulated. It's an attitude or a state of mind that's best captured by the phrase fear of the Lord. And those who fear the Lord are those who have found wisdom because Yahweh is the source of all wisdom. So we don't lose sight of wisdom by keeping God's word close. But also look at verse 26. We keep God's word close ultimately so we don't lose sight of the fact that God, at the end of the day, is the one who keeps us close. Verse 26, notice the word keep again. We're not just to keep wisdom and and, uh, discretion, but the Lord will be our confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. There's a song, Walt, wrote years ago, it was on our first Songs of Grace album. We've sung it many times here at Grace called Have Faith. And there's a line we sing that says, hold on to the God who's holding on to you. That's what's going on here in Proverbs. It's saying, hold on, but it's it's to a God who is holding, who has laid hold of you and is holding on to you. That's where this security comes from in verses 22 and 23 and 24. This knowledge, that, this confidence that God will keep your foot from being caught is what gives you life in your soul and, and allows you to walk on your way securely and sleep um, sweetly, rest your head um, without anxiety because this God is holding on to you. We sing, waking or sleeping, thy presence, my light. This is what wisdom offers to us, what God's wisdom. It's a tree of life. So second point is really a question then. In the last few verses, I think the question is, so what's behind tree number two? If we don't get and lay hold of and hold on to wisdom, but we decide to opt for tree number two and say, okay, now I'm gonna operate by the world's wisdom, where does that lead? And we get this list of do nots. And as I read this list of do nots, it's like, it reads like a sampler of the sort of culture that sin creates. This is what it looks like if we turn our back on the tree of life and we decide we're just gonna walk according to the wisdom of this world. That's how we're gonna get happiness. When I read this list of do nots, it makes me think first of the the early chapters of Genesis. As soon as sin enters in, in Genesis 4, 5, and 6, it's amazing how fast a broken culture, a culture of death spreads a culture of fear and insecurity and antagonism and violence and hostility, 
a dog-eat-dog sort of a, a culture. That's where the wisdom of this world leads. Everyone grasping for happiness in their own way, whatever seems right to them. These do nots also remind me of Romans 12 too, that says, don't be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to the way this world says you will find happiness. Here's three of the things that the world's wisdom says that we are to reject. First, the world's wisdom says, you have to look out for number one. Look at verse 27, 28. Live according to the world's wisdom, you look out for number one. Life is a zero sum game. Your gain is my loss. So my gain is your loss. So I'd better look out for myself first, not for my neighbor. But look what God's wisdom says. God says, no, a culture of life comes this way. Don't withhold good from those to whom it's due when it's in your power to do it. Don't say to your neighbor, go and come again. Tomorrow I'll give it when you have it with you. Don't believe that wisdom that says you have to look out for number one. Don't be a Scrooge. Rather, like Philippians 2 calls us as people who have been redeemed through Christ to have this mind, which is ours in Christ Jesus, that though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't look out for number one. He emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. He was made in our likeness so that he could then lay down his life, becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross and save us, cover the guilt of our sin. And, and notice in the gospel, that wasn't even a good that we were due, that he, we deserved Jesus to, to give us. We actually didn't deserve it. And even still, Jesus didn't withhold it from us. It was in his power to give and he gave it. He gave his life as a ransom. How can we, as recipients of generosity like that, close our Bibles this morning and leave this campus and turn our back toward our neighbor and hoard and be selfish and look out for number one? It's completely antithetical to the grace that we've received. Wisdom looks to create a culture of generosity in a me-first world. Look at what else the world's wisdom says. Verse 29, verse 30, survival of the fittest. That's how you will be happy. But God's wisdom says, don't plan evil against your neighbor who dwells trustingly beside you. Don't contend with a man for no reason. The key here, I think, is how the victims are described, trustingly and for no reason. Undeserving people who don't see it coming. It's saying, don't be an exploiter. In the pursuit of your own happiness, don't take advantage of your neighbor's weakness <clears throat> or betray your neighbor's trust. <clears throat> Wisdom seeks to create a culture of trust in a watch your back sort of world. And the world's wisdom says this, might makes right. Look at verse 30, or 31, 32. We don't have to look far to, to learn that this world often tells us that, that might makes right, that the violent, the ones who are strong and, and, and take what they want, often succeed. You don't have to teach children this even. You can find bullies at preschool playgrounds. We learn this very early. It can be tempting when someone's standing between us and the happiness that we want to not to just blow right over that and just, and just plow through. And, and, and God's wisdom says this, don't envy a man of violence. Don't choose any of his ways. 
The devious person's an abomination to the Lord, but upright, the upright are in his confidence. The path of violence and taking what we want, no matter what, is an abomination. It turns God's stomach. And instead, God calls us to follow the man of peace, Jesus, who offered himself to the worst evil and deviousness and mistreatment of his neighbors at the cross. He suffered it in our place. And Jesus actually, rather than might make right, he restrained all of his divine might as he laid down his life and he suffered the death that we deserved. This is the God who's calling us this morning to the paths of life. And the question as we finish is, who will we trust? From which tree will we eat? The last three verses say, that, say this, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked. Is that where we're going to choose? But he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Towards scorners, he's scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor or grace. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. So again, which path are we going to choose here this morning? Creation is crying out to us, trust God's wisdom. The cross cries out to us, trust God's wisdom. How can you doubt that God wants your best if he would not even withhold his only son to secure your redemption from your own foolishness and sin? He's made known to you the path of life. His presence brings fullness of joy and his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's walk in it, Grace. Let me pray. Thank you, Jesus, this morning for your undeserved love and grace and mercy toward us. We're fools. Even this morning, each one of us, there exists in our hearts inclinations to distrust you and to think thoughts of you that aren't worthy of you, assuming that you are a withholding God, that you're a demanding God, a taking God, not a giving blessing, gracious God. Thank you, Jesus, that you laid aside your life and riches and honor so that we might have eternal life, riches and honor. We're prone to wander from your path, Lord. I pray even this morning your word would be calling us to it for the first time or back to it again. Thank you for the confidence that we can leave here this morning with that you are the one who will keep our feet from getting caught. So we hold on to you this morning as you hold on to us in Jesus' name. Amen.